Welcome back and or to the Pondering AI podcast. My name is Kimberly Nebula. I'm a strategic advisor at SAS and your host this season as we contemplate the imperative for responsible AI. Each episode will be joined by an expert to explore a different aspect of the ongoing quest to ensure AI or artificial intelligence is deployed fairly, safely, and justly today and in the future. Today, I am joined by Renee Cummings. Renee is a criminologist, criminal psychologist, an AI ethics evangelist, and the data activist in residence at the University of Virginia. She is also, as you're about to hear, one of the most positively passionate people I have ever had the pleasure of meeting. So welcome, Renee. Kimberly, thank you for that absolutely fantastic introduction. (laughs) Thank you very much. Well, now your career did not and hasn't been in tech. Can you tell us a little about your experiences prior to joining the AI fray? Certainly. So I began my life as a journalist and broadcaster, and then I started to work in marketing and uh, fashion. And while I was doing that, I decided uh, it was time to uh, pursue a master's degree. And I actually did a joint master's degree in substance abuse uh, therapy and education, focusing on rehabilitation. And while Mm -hmm. I was working in uh, the uh, realm of substance abuse, working with individuals who were taking treatment uh, instead of a, a prison sentence, I realized that there was something bigger about rehabilitation that I was not tapping into. And that was really the correlation between substance abuse and criminal justice. And that's when I entered uh, John Jay College of Criminal Justice. I started to pursue a career as a criminologist and criminal psychologist. Uh, While I was there, I also did a master's certificate in terrorism studies, looking at psychodynamics. So I think all of my work has always been about the mind and uh, how the mind works. Uh, in this context, it was how the mind works within the you know, realm of commissioning crimes and how I could reduce criminal activity or criminal behavior, criminality just in general, and how I could treat things like addictions and all the things that may lead someone to a life of crime. So it was while working as a criminal just in the criminal justice system, I started to come across these risk assessment tools that were being used uh, for sentencing and being used in the correction setting uh, to grant uh, something like parole. And there were things about it that really questioned me, like the, you know, the, the content of, of the data that was being used and, and who was really creating these risk assessment tools, what were they basing it on? So that was my entree into artificial intelligence, uh, looking at algorithmic decision-making systems, whether or not they were fair, whether or not they were accountable, because they certainly weren't transparent at the moment. And they were presenting major challenges and really frustrating due process. So that's how I ended up in AI. That is a, that's an amazing journey. And I didn't know some of that. I think you might be the very epitome of a lifelong learner. We talk about that all the time. (laughs) (laughs) So how did your role at the University of Virginia, which is really interesting, come about? Well, I have had uh, the wonderful experience uh, probably for the last two years speaking internationally on AI ethics. I think I would, you know, tell people that the, uh, conscience of AI should be criminal justice, because that's where AI was making and continues to make 
you know, life decisions, decisions that can change the trajectory of someone's life uh, pretty mm-hmm. much in the, br- the blink of an eye. So real-time criminal justice decisions. And uh, that uh, really allowed me to look at my work in policing because about the last 15 years of my life uh, was spent working uh, with the police, training police officers uh, in things like uh, homicide reduction, uh, gun and gang violence reduction, uh, crimes against children, violent crimes in general. And much of my work was also big data policing. And you would realize that big data policing and uh, AI seems to have a, a natural fit that is very unnatural. So I think it is uh, trying to bring some oversight to the work work of law enforcement and the application of AI in law enforcement, I applied for this residency at the School of Data Science at the University of Virginia, and I was uh, very lucky to receive it. And my work there now looks at things like big data policing, mass surveillance technologies. How do we bring uh, more public oversight? How do we look at things like privacy, uh, you know, uh, juxtaposed against uh, community security? So it's, it's all in the same area, just different aspects of AI being deployed across the criminal justice uh, matrix. So one of the things that I f- think we find really challenging is making the discussion, I think, of ethics palatable, right, or easy to engage in. I think it can feel esoteric. It can even, I think, feel threatening in, in an odd way. Um, we hear things like ethics and maybe even more so regulation as a constraint on things like innovation. And I wonder, have we created a bit of an unnatural tension, even an artificial tension, pardon the pun, uh, between these concepts? I think, uh, no, and I'll tell you why. I think we all know that ethics and innovation can exist in the same space. And ethical innovation really stretches the imagination of artificial intelligence. I think uh, there is this belief that uh, sort of the freedom to express creatively within the context of AI could be uh, hampered if there is too much regulation or if there's too much legislation. And and that could be so. And, you know, the, the jury is still out on that decision. But I think what I try to do with my work is really about ways in which we can stretch not only the ethical imagination of AI, but appreciate that by stretching the ethical imagination of AI, we are also stretching the creative imagination because now we're looking at concepts like diversity and equity and inclusion Mm -hmm. and how powerful they are when it comes to really bringing uh, more perspective uh, to the realm of AI. Yeah, and I know you talk a lot about, uh, and it's a really important conversation more broadly, about intersectionality. And within the AI community today, what are we getting right and what are we getting wrong, both in our understanding and our approach to intersectionality? Well, certainly. I don't uh, like to look at things as right or wrong. This Fair. is certainly a new area. Now, AI in itself may not be that new. We know, you know that, that there was that major conference you know, in the 50s and all these great sure. minds came together, and that's fantastic. I think there are certain challenges because it is something that is new. And uh, what these challenges are presenting uh, would be uh, different ways in which we need to think about the technology. So I think at this moment, we haven't yet really embraced 
diversity and inclusion as tightly as we need to. We have not yet really uh, embraced difference as tightly as we need to. And I think we have not really celebrated the kind of dynamism something like a multicultural approach could bring to the technology. We know there is a design monoculture, and we know that design monoculture emanates from a particular space and a particular mindset and a particular kind of thinking. But what we need to do with AI is if we really want this technology to mature and this technology to really imagine uh, new ways of existing together and more efficient uh, ways and more effective ways of us creating systems that are going to benefit society, then we've got to broaden our cosmology. So it's not about right or wrong, but there are challenges. And I think AI is up for the challenge because there are so many brilliant and dynamic people working in this space. So can you give an example maybe of where a lack of uh, dynamism, I love that word, I think I may mispronounce it, but has maybe caused some issues and an example of a transformation that was really driven and enhanced by dynamism. So what does this actually allow us to accomplish if we're able to expand our imagination and also expand the tent in terms of who's participating? Right, certainly. I think a big one at the moment could be something like facial recognition. And I think I was startled a few months ago by a headline that said, you know, facial recognition cannot tell Black people apart. And I think Joy Bulamwini has done an extraordinary amount of work when it comes to coded bias, when it comes to understanding that this technology is gender biased, it is racially biased. And I think what we have seen is that if we are building a technology, and of course, we know at this moment, facial recognition has overpromised and underdelivered when it comes to crime control and, and crime prevention. We also know that uh, the things that it had hoped to uh, achieve in real time uh, really uh, did not happen because many of the cases attached to this technology have been wrongful arrest. And of course, wrongful uh, you know conviction is never a good thing in the criminal justice system. I think what we have seen because of these missteps by the technologists who did not embrace a diverse and inclusive perspective has been the uh, creation of a space of, of resistance and a space of uh, intellectualism and dynamism because you have these brilliant uh, now in AI, AI ethicists and data activists who are really looking at more technology. So that one mishap has created a space or, or really created many uh, different lenses for us to look at technologies across the board uh, within uh, new and emerging technology. So I think what we're seeing is where there is inaction, it's creating a lot of action. And that action is bringing more equity in the ethics space to the ways in which future technologies are going to be created. So it's, it's actually a good thing. So is there an example that comes to mind now where we've actually been able to overcome and, and deploy this technology or these AI systems in a way that really does forward in a positive way you know, whether it's a system or a process, uh, the, the progress of... of sure. I, I think... I think the ones that are working well are the ones that are, are working, uh, let's say, uh, with less people in the sense uh, in climate change and okay. in, in communications and in, uh, you know, just uh, systems technology, in uh, transportation, uh, in healthcare. Although there has been 
some, you know, challenge mm-hmm. within healthcare when it comes to the lack of diversity in the data sets. But we are definitely seeing as a society, as a world, uh, when we look at things like connectivity. Of course, communication, as I said, transportation, uh, retail, uh, just marketing in general, you know, even in education, we are seeing great impact. I was reading recently of uh, drones being sent to the Great Wall of China to photograph mm-hmm. cracks in the wall so that, you know, architects could uh, look at that and th- they could improve that. Those things blow my mind. Uh, when you think about restoration, when you think about working in, in the museum space and the digitizing of all of that, and I saw something recently uh, using virtual reality that took us back to uh, a march that Dr. Martin Luther King had. And, you know, and I felt as though I was there. Those are great things. You know, those are the things that, that really excite. So I think we are seeing, I mean, just in science and technology in general, you know, we have been seeing an extraordinary impact with this technology. And that's what I love about AI. And that's what makes me so passionate. At scale, this technology can just do extraordinary, extraordinary good. Yeah, and it's interesting because a lot of the examples you just provided are probably AI being applied to systems where fundamentally they're not about making decisions or influencing human action or decision. And and there's this really interesting conversation, I think, um, like Safia Noble, who's the author of Algorithms of Oppression, brings up regularly about the use of prediction systems and when are they appropriate and inappropriate because these predictions use a past reality to project a future reality. And perhaps the way we architect them in some cases uh, enforce outcomes that we don't intend to enforce. And so it enforces by virtue of using them. We've predicted a future reality, and then we put the process in place that then enforces or creates that future reality. So are there systems, and I'm, I'm interested in the context you've worked within the criminal justice system and in some of these really interesting areas where you feel AI is appropriate to use or areas that you think we really have to apply or approach them with a lot of extra caution? Uh, Definitely. You know, algorithmic decision-making systems are very powerful. And the challenge there becomes uh, using historic data and really creating a future that looks like the past. And that's what we're seeing uh, because of the bias uh, data sets, because of the fact, uh, you know, discrimination and something like uh, systemic racism could be actually baked into a data set. So, so yes, so we are definitely aware of that. In criminal justice, uh, AI has a major role to play. And I think I'm committed to ensuring that uh, that role is played out fairly and that role respects due process and duty of care. And there are requisite levels of due diligence and vigilance uh, when it comes to uh, building these technologies. And of course, working with data scientists to build ethical resilience, because that is also critical to your ethical imagination. Where it can work is that... uh, Big numbers have always worked well with crime prevention and crime control. So big data has a powerful role to play there. The challenge is that because so much of the data sets are biased and because so much of the data is captured by over-policing, already over-policed communities, then what we are getting is not a fresh approach to crime prevention or crime reduction, but we're getting an old, an archaic uh, sort of uh, biased uh, approach coming into the future, and that's what we don't want. And how do we not get that? Well, definitely we're realizing that more and more law enforcement needs to be trained. And there's a total lack of training when it comes to understanding these systems. So AI in the hands of uh, 
you know, a cavalier police agency can become a very deadly tool if it is used as a toy. And that's what we're seeing. So, so much of my work looks at algorithmic policing and algorithmic force that's being deployed in the communities. Now, as I said, I appreciate the kind of impact AI is having and will continue to have in criminal justice, policing, sentencing, and corrections. Uh, The challenge at the moment is to get that right because of the lack of regulation, because, uh, you know, the lack of training, and because that concept of an ethical approach to new and emerging technology is really not as broad-based as we need it at this moment. Why do you think that is? Is it a lack of awareness? Is it a lack of education? Is it just well, Sure. Hard? I think it's, it's happening so quickly. Hmm. Uh, this is happening very quickly. And uh, so many individuals are engaged in this technology and not knowing they're engaged in it and almost sitting and waiting for AI to arrive. And, you know, you always have to let them know that it's been here for quite some time. I think it is a combination of how quickly it is happening. The fact that technology always outpaces the law and the law is continuously playing catch up. There's also the question of that codependence between big tech and government creating these algorithmic decision making systems. So we, we, we all know that, you know, many uh, big tech uh, companies are sometimes bigger than some countries and, and sometimes more powerful. And some countries are using certain companies to provide the, the hardware and, and the software for their digital transformation system. So that codependence will always put some pressure on the kind of uh, sustainable uh, regulation that you can get. And of course, the training. The training isn't there just as yet, but I'm hopeful. I am hopeful that the work that we are doing and, and the, the ways in which we are building uh, public awareness and, and we are you know, doing public education through even this kind of media advocacy, these are the critical things to get that conversation distilled into the corners where they need to be. Yeah. And, you know, I want to go back. You had touched on the idea of creativity and us really needing to stretch our imagination when we think about designing and applying these systems And we often talk about the need to start with the end in mind. And I wonder if we are, in some cases, misapplying this concept as we architect these new digital systems and processes. And maybe we're doing that because we define the end in mind as recreating the existing system and process versus then starting with what is it we want to achieve and might there be a different approach to that. You've got some experience with this idea of like therapeutic jurisprudence, which requires shifting the lens really fundamentally on some of these, you know, really snarly topics. Um, how do you how do you react to that, and and how do we encourage and enable people to stretch their imagination and maybe start in a different place? Well, it certainly comes down to deconstructing what is the end in mind, and I think we may need to sort of disrupt. Uh, that concept of the end in mind and ask, you know, whose end are we talking about? I think what we need to see would be uh, a bit more mindfulness in the ways in which we design attached to that concept of, of, of moral imagination and, of course, creative imagination. I think what we would also like to look at, uh, not only a mindfulness, but, uh, you know, I, I speak about this this cosmology that needs to be broader. And I think it really comes back to understanding, you know, we can have 
as much diversity and inclusion and equity, uh, you know, you know, you know, <laughs> principles and frameworks there. But if we don't come from a place of authenticity, when it comes to understanding our own biases, then we are not going to achieve that uh, end in mind that is supposed to be for maximum good and maximum uh, benefit and maximum, uh, you know, groups. So I think it really comes back to me, to that place of being authentic about who we are, about our biases, and how these uh, biases can really uh, find their way into the kinds of things we design and, and how do we think about you know, the user experience and who do we give priority when it comes to creating who that user is. So, so that's, you know, for me, is about authenticity and mindfulness uh, combined with that you know, moral imagination and, you know, an ethical approach to innovation. Yeah. And I, I that's a great term, algorithmic authenticity. I, I really like that. I think it's a, a fantastic tagline and also I think the spirit of what you're trying to achieve. Um, really quickly, I guess a, a little bit of a further question on that. I think a lot of times we, we know that the data AI systems are trained on is the reality they know. That's it. That's That's all of it. Um, and a lot of times when we're approaching how to maybe not design, but address what can be bias or inequalities or unfairness in those systems, we start by trying to fix the data. Does that work? Is that the right approach or is there a better way to do this? Well, at the moment, it is the approach. It's about how do we yeah. de-bias the data? And there are many technical uh, solutions and approaches and more and more as we speak are being developed. But we've got to look at de-biasing the data and de-biasing the mind. So it's a combination of tech a technological approach and a, a, mm -hmm. a thinking approach. And I think if we were to get both of the, you know, of, of those uh, really aligned, then we will definitely see the kinds of systems that uh, will create uh, the kinds of legacies that we could be proud of. So are there specific tactics, you know, if, if you will, that organizations can use to sort of engage and enable this conversation. Uh, these are certainly, they can be sensitive, they can be contentious. We're dealing with trying to balance sometimes, whether this is for better or for worse, balance corporate interests against the, the greater public good, right? These bigger pieces. Um, and, I, and I imagine it can feel quite overwhelming. Are there specific things as you advise companies that are looking to bring these, whether that's in the public sector and in the justice system or elsewhere, that they can start to adopt and bring into their organizations to help promote and, and, and forward this conversation? Definitely. And I've spent... Uh, quite some time working in crisis communication and in risk yeah. management. And, and now I do our AI risk management. And it's about this. It's about appreciating that there is a risk-based approach to reducing uh, bias in AI. And there's also a rights-based approach. And you've got to combine the risk-based approach with the rights-based approach to get the approach that really works. So it's about creating a space for intellectual confrontation, allowing your your designers and other people in the organization to sit and really flesh out 
uh, whatever that product is going to be or that program or that system and, and have that authentic conversation. I always say we ask questions and then we get the answers and the answers make us so uncomfortable that we, we don't want to move. But we've got to understand that the uncomfortable answers uh, create a space for really, you know, coming up with creative solutions. And I think if we were to do that and we were to understand uh, the whole concept of how deep implicit bias is, and it's not something we could remove, uh, you know, by taking a one away or taking a zero away, it's not going to happen like that. But you're going to have that honest and you're going to have that open space and you're going to amplify uh, certain voices in that space as well. You know, it's it's, it's really important to give all voices uh, a space to... uh, Uh, get involved in the conversation. And if you understand that, yes, there is a technical approach to reducing uh, bias and discrimination in our algorithms, but there's also a rights-based approach. And we have got to think about accountability and transparency and explainability and and fairness and about uh, just being responsible and being trustworthy and being principled in the ways in which we approach AI, then we're really going to get uh, responsible new and emerging uh, technology. So it's about building uh, organizational culture of ethics or an ethical organizational culture that is authentic. We're not talking about ethical theater and all the acting uh, that goes with it. We're not talking about ethics washing or window dressing with ethicists. We're not speaking about that. We're speaking about finding an authentic place and really building uh, algorithms from that place. I really like that concept. And I think it's very difficult, though, that we have to be comfortable being uncomfortable, um, especially when we're dealing with these systems that are, you know, being working against people. And and I don't mean I'm not saying working against people pejoratively, but working for or on behalf of of people, however that may may be. Um, We know that we need to bring more diversity and inclusion into the workplace. We focus a lot on STEM in terms of that. Are there other skills uh, and perspectives? Your background is is such a great example that we should be prioritizing as we build out teams and as we think about building literacy and working for the the workforce of the future. Definitely. I think uh, more and more we're realizing that AI cannot stand alone. And we're seeing that the social sciences and humanities are really spaces that organizations have got to pull from if you want to develop mature technology, particularly uh, responsible and trustworthy AI. It has got to be an interdisciplinary approach to the design, development, and deployment of this technology. And I think if we get that right, then we are going to see our perspectives broadening in real time. And we're going to see that really eclectic and inclusive uh, cosmology that is uh, so critical to just stretching this ethical and uh, creative imagination of AI. So you clearly see the pitfalls and yet maintain such positivity about the potential of AI. What, what sustains and drives that spark for you? Because it could be easy. It's, it's easy to get overwhelmed and sort of want to throw up your hands in some cases, I think. 
Well, you know, uh, I spend so much time working with organizations and individuals to sort of democratize data and democratize this technology. And I always say it's not about fear. Uh, it really is about always being aware. You, were, you will always find challenges. This is something that we're developing. This is something that is so powerful and, and something that has such extraordinary promise is that we've got to be committed to getting it right. And in as much as I want everyone to enjoy the benefits of this technology, I also want to ensure that the right protections are there. Those robust and rigorous guardrails are there to hold this technology up and to really uh, ensure that uh, the greatest good comes out of the things that we're doing with new and emerging technologies. So for me, the challenges have got to come. And the more challenges we get in the early stages, the better prepared we are for building something that's going to really deliver what we want. So I think it's an exciting space. And this is why I say is we've got to be prepared to be uncomfortable, but we've got to be authentic and we have got to be mindful and we've got to know that without intellectual confrontation, without diversity and inclusion, without respecting equity and amplifying all voices and, and, and you know, providing space for underrepresented or unrepresented or under-resourced groups to, to have a voice and knowing that uh, there are certain things that we're, got, we're going to have to protect, all of this is good. All of this is good trouble that we're creating because what we want is really something that we can be proud of. Yeah, and it would, be, would it be fair to say also that in we need to strive for that perfection and understand that to do that, we not only need to really focus on getting it right, but, but be comfortable with getting it wrong and having those conversations and making mistakes. Making mistakes, not because we didn't think about it, but because we're just never going to get it right at least not the first time, it's, some of these things are going to be trial and error. And, and that's, again, another uncomfortable reality, assuming I've uh, you agree with that conceptually. Well, uh, definitely. I mean, I think when it comes to perfection, perfection is, is really, you know, putting the bar really high because we're <laughs> yeah. all imperfect. So we're never going to get the perfect algorithm and we're never going to get uh, the perfect algorithmic decision-making system and we're never going to get the perfect AI. So uh, because we... <laughs> as a world, as a people, as individuals are imperfect. But we've got to appreciate and we've got to understand that we're going to get a lot of things wrong. But we've got to have the courage to say we got it wrong and we've got to do it right. And for us to do it right, we may need other individuals involved who may not sound like us, who may not look like us, who may not think like us. But by having that measure of diversity, what we are creating are checks and balances. What we are creating would be systems for due diligence. What we are building would be broad consciousness. We are raising conscience. We are, we are doing things that would make us eternally vigilant because that is what we have got to be when it comes to new and emerging technology. We have got to be eternally vigilant. We cannot fall asleep on AI. Yeah, uh, eternal vigilance. I'm, I'm writing down all of these uh, key concepts uh, as we go. Um, you've got my mind racing. If we look out now three to five years, what do you hope to see? What will have changed in that time? Uh, what do I hope to see? Well, I hope to see a world that is definitely uh, more efficient. 
Uh, I hope to see systems that are more effective. I hope to see governance systems that are definitely more equitable. I hope to see uh, scientific solutions that are really uh, diverse and inclusive and equitable as well. I, I hope to see AI creating a better world. You know, I always say uh, when I work with data scientists, because I always also say that most people ask me, what is a data activist? And, you know, for me, a data activist is the conscience of the data scientist. So when I speak to individuals, I always say that an algorithm is not a formula. It's not a computational. It is a legacy that you are creating. So what I hope to see in three to five years is a legacy of this technology that embraces a worldview and that really speaks to a society that is better than what we are now. And sort of some, maybe a final thought, what advice would you give individuals who are looking to engage and contribute to the development of AI into this discussion writ large? Definitely. I would say get involved. Get involved. Even if you are in a non-tech uh, field, as I entered from a non-tech uh, space, get involved. Because if we are using a technology to create a new world, a new world is not a world of only technologists. A new world is a world of all of us. So I would say get involved wherever you are. And if you already, if you're already working in this field, I would say lead from wherever you stand or wherever you sit and ensure that this legacy that you are creating with this technology is one that is going to build a better future. Thank you. I have to say, I leave this conversation with you as I always do, just so positively energized and my mind is is spinning. So I really want to thank you for, as you have said, inviting yourself to the AI table and joining us here today. We are all so much the better for having you. Thank you so much for inviting me. It was certainly a pleasure. All right. In our next episode, Bina Amanath joins us to discuss the current state of AI ethics in research and practice. Bina serves as the executive director of Deloitte's Global AI Institute and leads Deloitte's trustworthy AI practice. Bina is also the founder of the nonprofit Humans for AI. Make sure you don't miss her by subscribing now to Pondering AI.